0: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Toby Young puts your money where his mouth is in defense of free speech. Samira Ahmed settles her pay case with the BBC. And Britain exits the Creative Europe Fund. Plus, we have reaction to the Radio Academy ARIA award winners and the BBC's hunt for new bosses for their pop radio networks. And in the media quiz, we celebrate the return of satirical puppet show Spitting Image. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining me today, the MD of Goldwalla, Faraz Osman. Hello, Faraz. Hello, how are you? I'm okay, thank you, but obviously not as good as you, looking at that giant, I mean, frankly, preposterous salt beef sandwich that you have I, in front of
2: it, you. I want to, it is a sandwich, although it does not look like a sandwich, it looks like... It looks um, like something you take into battle. Yeah, it's a, it's a like ration it. for a week. I quite like it. I'm currently, re, <laughs> I'm currently re-watching Parts and Recreation, and its uh, it makes me feel like... Uh, that, that, you know, the, the, that I'm kind of championing meat in the, in the last dying days of veganism.
1: I mean, we often talk Alex Hudson, our other guest, uh, about the benefits of recording here at Spiritland Studios. So. One of the supporters of the show. <laughs> um, but but we've never mentioned before that apparently they let you. Not only do they serve food here, they let you bring it into the studio.
2: I don't know if that's official. I kind of smuggled it in. Well, no one's and, told you not to. Okay. They let Faraz Osman.
3: Don't do you get it, it. Yeah, confiscated. Now,
2: now you've just done something. They'll, they'll listen to this and they will change that rule. <laughs> Ollie, if they take the sandwich away from me, I'm blaming you. Uh
1: now, Alex, you were the former deputy editor of Metro.co.uk, but tonight, Matthew, you will be
3: I still am for the next two weeks, okay. technically speaking. Uh I am moving to Newsweek to become editor of Newsweek International, which Congratulations. Is, thank you. It's terrifying, utterly terrifying. Big heritage brand? Big heritage brand, big US presence. Uh, They did have a big international presence and they're trying to rebuild that and grow it back out. And it is my job to rebuild that presence. So big global presence, UK first, Europe second, Far East third, Middle East fourth.
1: I guess, dare I say, similarly to Metro or or, or Metro Online in a kind of way, (laughs) there's maybe an element of the population here that don't know what it's for. They might have heard of it and don't know why.
3: Um, I think because Newsweek is such a big US brand, I think the... Its job is to be the most trusted publisher, which is which is the where we have to build Newsweek up. So it has to be, it has Nigel Farage writing for it, it has David Miliband writing for it, has like all manner of people across across the political spectrum, because it has to have all the views from all the sides and it has to allow readers to make their own mind up. And that's something which we think and we hope is lacking in the British market of those people who are just bang center and bang trustworthy and do not publish fake news, do not publish clickbait get to the right ro- get to the bottom of the stories and that's my sort of PR line at the moment good yeah well no, I haven't even gonna, started yet I'm not going to push you too hard <laughs> to
1: say something that you're going to come to regret on your first day I no think it's a like
3: there's Farid uh, uh, Zakaria is the old who's now a CNN anchor so he used to do the job of Newsweek International Editor so that, that makes me realise how much of a terrifying ridiculously big job this is mm. you who
2: know, I think I'm distantly related to in some way my mum keeps mentioning it. every time he appears on TV it's a bit like he's your cousin I'm like is he is he really <laughs> or is he just brown which is it
1: does Does he sit there eating an
2: enormous deli sandwich? We <laughs> well, it probably comes out in New York. <laughs> but, it, but it'd be interesting because obviously like Newsweek for me is is like one of those air, airport um, magazines, mm. airport titles, that you mm. kind of always see it when you're kind of getting on domestic or international flights. It'd be interesting to know with everything that's going on at the moment, whether or not that, that sort of market of, of um, papers and magazines who do get a lot of, of traction in, in airports is going to be hit by less than people taking flights. For
3: Newsweek, it's digital first. So it's how we build out the digital subscription model, how we work through it, how we don't remove the sort of importance of the physical copy or the edition-based publishing, but how we move it into a sort of forward-thinking digital All right, okay, you're not in your job interview now. (laughs) Uh,
1: And for us, uh, you've just launched your first BBC Sounds podcast. Yeah, so
3: actually we have done
2: six episodes of a podcast called Fresh to Death, which was... um, for BBC Sounds and the Asian Network, and was all about um, death, loss and grief in immigrant communities and and the British Asian community. Uh, We had an incredible couple of hosts, uh, Melina, who lost her brother when she was a teenager to leukaemia, and Saima, who runs a cafe in Broccoli and is also living a stage four lung cancer. Um, And they have both been incredible in just being really open about the fact that we need to have this conversation. And, and we've uncovered some just awesome stories because I think this is one of those things that in the podcasting space, once you allow people to talk about this sort of stuff, they, they just open up and they have the most incredible, fascinating stories. Mm. So we're really proud of it. It should all be up there now by the time this goes out. Um, six episodes, please do listen to it. Uh, it is a hard listen, but I think that's sort of the beauty of podcasts because you just press play when you're ready to listen to it rather than it coming onto your wireless unexpectedly.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's exactly the kind of area, because it's such a huge, broad canvas issue that affects everybody, death, that actually, you know, taking it out of, I suppose, the sort of Asian network uh, sphere
2: and thinking, how does this apply to everybody? You couldn't Mm. find a more universal subject, really. Well, I I think that... Look, at Death and Grief, there have been quite a few. I mean, obviously, Griefcast is a massive podcast. You, Me and the Big C is a really big podcast. And and there have been quite a few things in this space, to the, to the point that when we pitched it, we were worried that, you know, this was going to be another one of those things um, and, and not be taken up. But I think that the way that we went about it is we really felt like this is a conversation that was having not being had within a particular community, of which I'm part of, the British Asian community. Um, and there were kind of unique stories within that. So we've got uh, a guy who runs a will writing company who just by a coincidence then lost his wife and had to deal with it um, himself after being in the industry. We've got this incredible story of this girl who's anonymous who was in a secret Asian relationship which is one uh, experience a lot of us have had. And Goes I, I on, bet the, the
1: contributors as well are much more willing to talk to an Asian yeah,
2: production team absolutely. and Asian presenters about that. Well, I'd like to hope so and, and it's, it's kind of, because I think we have that relatability and, and this girl she was in a relationship with another Asian guy and we've been in that situation all of us that were around that table um and then she went on holiday with him and then he got into a surfing accident and passed away so she kind of has that level of universality about an asian experience and then it gets taken to the next level by by the fact that she has to do a grief along the way um and once we kind of get into drill down into the kind of culture nuances of it it really kind of demonstrates that actually it's it's a shared experience we just all need to talk about it so we're really really proud of it
1: okay Great. All right, let's start talking about some actual media news stories.
3: Uh, and... Newsweek
2: is new. It counts.
3: <laughs> Wait, the Bradford the doesn't. You've got the exclusive. It doesn't come out until tomorrow, until um, Monday morning. There, there we go. There you go. We're digital first too. Yeah. Um, let's start by talking about the ARIA
1: Awards, which happened this week. Formerly the Sony Awards, the Radio Academy Awards. Um, but it wasn't just radio talent that was rewarded this year. There were quite a lot of podcasters as well. Good representation of independent and uh, uh, BBC and and commercial. What did you think of the winners?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it is uh, is dominated still by the commercials and uh, and the heritage brands from the BBC. And one of the things every every time somebody mentions the ARIA Awards to me, we we got a job a few years ago to do some filming at the ARIA Awards, and I was like, oh, this is quite exciting except it was actually the Ari Awards in Sydney, which is the equivalent of the Brits in Australia. And suddenly we were prepping for a radio award ceremony and then realised that actually it was the equivalent of the Brit Awards in Sydney. Um, So the name always kind of throws me slightly. But I I think that... The it, For me, I've, you know, it's it's an industry that's kind of fairly new to us, um, radio and, and podcasts, and it's great that it's being celebrated. Um, my understanding of it is that there has been a bit of turbulent few years and it seems like it's settled down now to to be able to celebrate podcasts and radios on an equal footing, um, which took a little bit of time for them to to kind of catch up with. But it does feel like it's the same, same level now. And as our resident Leeds champion, Alex, <laughs>
1: it is kind of noteworthy, isn't it, that it does seem to be generating more headlines now it is back in London. So the Palladium than in the past few years when they did host it in Leeds. You know, yeah. despite all of the good intentions and it was a good laugh going up there for people that came from the South, it, it does have more traction down
3: here. You say all of the headlines. Like, you were saying ARIA has got some terrible SEO performance. Mm. So, like, you, you Google ARIA, you get nothing. I had to I had to hunt for the winners this morning to work out who on earth had won because it wasn't that instantly recognisable. Like, it hasn't got that crossover, despite the fact that everybody listening to the podcast and everybody who's interested in media knows about all the winners.
1: Well, actually, let's briefly just say who some of the winners were. So, uh, Greg B- James... Just the BBC. Seven, so <laughs> was it?
3: 17, 17 out of 23 awards were BBC-based. Was it? Okay. Yeah.
1: So Greg James, Breakfast Show. Uh, Emma Barnett, uh, Best Speech Presenter. Uh, Peter Crouch, Podcast uh, Sports Show. Well, they got the silver, didn't they? So, that, But that's a podcast, so I suppose that's noteworthy in and of itself. A.E. got the best breakfast show for one extra. Um, Ian Lee on Talk Radio moment of the year, which was voted by the public.
3: That that was an incredible moment. If you if you haven't listened to that, it's him talking to a person who was thinking about uh, taking their own life, and it, it was it was a haunting bit of like. And it's and it's and it's because mental health and that sort of suicide prevention has, got, has taken such hold this year. That moment was a key part of how that moved the conversation on. Yeah, but
2: interestingly, Radio Two picked up Station of the Year, and and with all the conversations going on around the BBC at the moment, I, I've had a few people bump into me and say radio 2 is one of those things that needs to have a, a look at about whether or not it is a public service thing or if it's a uh, if it's a station that um is is kind of influences the, the commercial aspects a bit too much and and um I think it's really good and encouraging for them to, to pick up that award because I can imagine that at broadcasting house there is a lot of kind of nervous faces coming into work at the moment, um, particularly when you look at brands like that. So, so the fact that they are still kind of punching above their weight and it is a really beloved station, I, th- I think, is a great thing, and I think that everyone deserves
3: to be rewarded for that. But then the opposite is true of Radio Four. So that I was looking through the nominations and there was no nominations for Radio Four. Um, like today, oh, there was one one for PM, but like today's program was entirely absent, mm. and that like I've. Technically, been part of like two Sony award-winning teams, and they were both for today. um And the fact that today isn't even getting a nomination either means they haven't bothered to submit, or like what's what's going on there? I think well, there was
1: a criteria, wasn't there? They were only allowed fifty percent BBC in each category for the nominations to give the commercials a chance. But, that's the, but then, realistically, that,
3: what happened That, isn't that it? puts the Today programme in the bottom half yes. of the BBC entries. And that's interesting by itself. And the fact that LBC isn't there at all. Well, because global don't enter. Precisely. Because
1: so they've got their very credible award ceremony, the Globals, which everyone <laughs> really cares about.
2: <laughs> Did it use, so this is what used to be the Sonys, right? So the Arias were yeah. the Sonys and then morphed into the Arias. Yes. See, and it's one of those things that, again, like as an outsider... Um, and I know we're doing a podcast, very proud of it. But we still feel like, you know, this is a space that we're learning. But it does feel quite confusing. I mean, even the BBC have got their own internal music and radio awards as well. Um, and it feels like it's it needs to kind of coalesce around one brand that everybody can kind of really feel like this is the Oscars for for this industry. Well,
1: except I wonder, and
2: Alex, Rich this is definitely album. your area, like, does it because of social media?
1: Like, Actually, if you have individuals like Emma Barnett and Ian Lee with big social media footprints winning awards then it sort of doesn't matter of what the award is. If they if they consider it important enough that they've won something and they share it with their followers and their followers all like it, then the job's done regardless of what how credible the, the
3: thing is. No, that is changing. You know, you can get given an award for left, like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but it
1: actually... Or even... to pick an example, Best News and Current Affairs Podcast at the Publisher Podcast Awards for the week unwrapped with Olly Mann. Congrats. Congratulations. Also on the same night as the Arias. That's where all the cool kids were.
3: How did you come to know about that award? That's That's, how, that's amazing. That, 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 there congratulations! You are. Real reaction. Uh, no, um, no, like I think congratulations, but genuine congratulations. <laughs> I, was to, I was trying to come up with a clever, witty comeback. Like I got nothing. Absolutely... How do I ironize this? No, no, ironize. <laughs> um, it's but it, like a, a presenter isn't going to say, "Oh, I won this thing that just isn't important." So the the the, the, re, the listener award is very important, and ARIA's at least in my radio experience, always were the Oscars. So when they're back at the Sonys, the Sonys were the thing. Yeah.
2: You, mm. Even you, I remember the Sonys. It's that, like it was a thing.
3: Yeah. That you were trying to win, albeit like it's from a BBC background. So the BBC are very much into the Sonys. But it's oh, and now the areas. So it's it's how you go around that. But with this blurry line of where podcasts are going and how much of a how much of a role does BBC sounds have in that. So like um Pauli on drugs, like Arguably, should have won not because it was perhaps the best podcast, but because the BBC is doing it, and the fact that the BBC is willing to do that. Have you Have you listened to that? Uh, no, it's 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 him having a really honest look at the drugs. So he's he's on BBC Sounds app, being like, "Yeah, I take I take loads of drugs. I do I do it every so often? You know, I do this, I do that." Talking to his friend who also does a lot, of, and actually getting to the real, frank conversations about drugs that the BBC was not doing five years ago, mm. and actually. That's the exciting bit about the Ares is that the Ares is now showcasing stuff that the BBC didn't used to do that is now doing. And it's because of the podcast, the podcast sphere that it are taking more risks that the BBC is looking at doing that now.
1: Also, I noticed that since they changed the title of the award from Best Comedy Programme to Funniest Show... Two years running now that Radio Four has not won the comedy award.
2: Uh, it's interesting.
1: Just a just a, a point of interest. Uh, okay, let's talk about Creative Europe now, um, because as of December 2020, so that's because of the transition period with Brexit. UK content producers will no longer be able to access the EU's funding stream. We found out over the past few weeks. Um can someone tell me about Creative Europe and and why it exists and how it exists?
2: <laughs> well, I think this is actually kind of part of the problem um because it's one of those it's one of those funds that that exists to kind of my understanding of it is is to kind of help um be part of that public service and uh, and and look at new ideas and and they did a lot of work in in lots of different regions in in the art space. And it's it's unfortunately one of those funds that's not very well publicized within the UK, so I don't think that many people know about it. Um, and so it may not be missed. It's one of those things that now we know it's being taken away. I think a lot of people will be like, oh, I didn't even know that existed. I can't believe it's been taken away from us.
1: And specifically, €89.5 million Euros mm, is what's been taken away over four years between 2014 and 2018. That's how much British industry got
3: from it. But then the, the total so it had more British creative industries known about it. It's €1.5 billion Euro available over the last six years. And so with that, maybe it just wasn't wasn't organised or wasn't advertised in the correct way, but it it's... This beautiful thing around how do you turn a British idea into a European idea or how do you turn, you know, a French idea into a European idea. It's it, at least from what I understand, the point of this fund is to turn a single country thing into a pan-European thing. So it allows travel and it's all about this public servicing. And that is part of this European experiment or the part of the sort of belief in Europe. Britain has chosen to be not part of that. Like, I was reading through the regulations, and there's a bit of it that sort of says, uh, you must still comply with certain EU regulations and policies and pay a financial contribution in order to participate. And that's where you get into Brexit. And that's that politically and PR-wise, you can't have that sentence in a, in a funding programme that Britain can still be part of after it
1: mm. But And, well, and also financially. I mean, presumably the money for it comes from each member state's contribution to being a member of the EU. So if we're not a
3: member of the EU anymore, it would be odd to keep contributing to it, wouldn't it? it, it some Euro, some European countries, some non-EU countries are still using it, but it, it's it's that thing of anything where we are seen to pass money to Europe is seen as politically damaging to the current government. And so that that I think is a big part of why it's been stopped. I mean it's, the important thing is will it get replaced?
1: You know, well, look, will the BFI
2: I mean, step up or whatever. I, I think the I think the first thing to, to consider is is the, I mean, it's easy to kind of bemoan Brexit and say, look, this is another thing that we're losing because of we're well, leaving the European Union. And I, I, unfortunately for me, I, I think this kind of demonstrates the, the poor. Communication that was had about the benefits of being in Europe of what this is this is part of, and, and we work in this industry. But I know very few people that have ever accessed this fund or have ever kind of you know pitched to it and, and feel like it's something that they benefited from. And it's another opportunity. And and now with the world working the way it is now, we're all looking for those pots of money. Be it from the BFI, you know, we're looking at the Teen Fund, we're looking at um, uh, you know the Children's Fund that's that's going on uh, around BFI as well. There's Creative set, which is now known as something else, but there's, there's Google. Lots- Facebook exactly. Welcome Trust well, exactly. BBC I mean there are lots of pots of money part sloshing of my, around Exactly and part of my job is to kind of identify where that money is and, and and tap into it whereas previously it was just two or three broadcasters that you would go to with your idea and hope to get it away now it's a very different economy and and so it's kind of like it's unfortunately it's really bad timing because it's the sort of thing that like smaller independent companies like myself would be going well is that something that we can pitch into that we know the big guys are ignoring Um, and, and it, it disappears as a result and, and that in in kind of conversely, is a bit weird because it's quite. It should be that we are supporting small businesses and we should be kind of helping them grow. And these are the ways to do that. Um, and now it's kind of disappearing, and we're we're kind of again back to the old way of doing things.
1: Still got six months.
2: Still, well, yeah. put your idea in now.
1: <laughs> Sneak it in.
2: Something that they're definitely going to go for. Some really pro-European thing. Well, we'll
1: brainstorm it after. this. <laughs> um, right, let's turn our attention to the uh, self-proclaimed defender of free speech. Uh, One Toby Daniel Mawson Young Um, What's Toby Young been up to this week? Graz, go on I'd like to hear your hot take first
2: uh, My understanding of this is that Toby Young has decided to launch some sort of union which you have to pay into The Free Speech Union The Free Speech Union From £24.95 a year for a membership (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that you then you then pay to, and then and then they will do something to defend free speech. I, I mean, I don't know if they're going to get around in a pub and wear you kind know, old knights of the Templar uniforms and and kind of bash their their swords against their like shields. Like Graham Linehan just stand behind you. Yeah, after the court case. I think I, I think what's really curious. Look, flippancy aside. I think that the kind of whole de-platforming issue is something that's that's worth having a conversation about because it is happening more and more and, and there is a kind of sense that every time somebody gets a bit of a profile, everyone digs into their old social media to see if they can find something that they can kind of bash you around the head with a stick about. It's kind of quite cheap tabloid journalism and we've seen it a lot. I mean, even with what's gone on with Caroline Flack recently, you know, everyone's floating around all oh, these are the social media messages I got Piers Morgan did it about Jamila Jamil. It's like, you know, it's unfortunately this kind of social media thing that we've created is easy to search through and, and get some sort of hysteria story off the back of it. But but for me, it's, it's really weird that we're having a conversation about free speech in what I see as an era where we've never been able to have so much free speech. Anybody can pick up a mobile phone and put something out in the ether and say whatever it is that they want. Yes, that may not align with your employer and your employer may take a view that actually that's not something that that kind of fits with. But if you make a decision to put something out there and publish something, there are going to be consequences of that. Otherwise, why would you publish it in the first place? So it's a bit of a weird thing to kind of say we're losing our free speech when I think we've had more of it than ever before.
1: I mean, there are increasing numbers of people Losing their jobs because of things they've said because of a woke Twitter mob, and the question is,
2: don't say it.
1: Is is well exactly. So the question is, should they take personal responsibility for that because they said it, it th- um, or it, it, does there come a point where it's gone too far and actually mob mentality is ruling?
3: There's a clear line here, and so I'm going to apologise to Bex now for what I'm about to say because you're going to have to edit bleep some of it. Um, I cannot say Toby Young is a. S- I cannot say is, s- and if I say that um, Toby Young is a- you will have had to bleep three or four of those words. But I can say that he's made xenophobic remarks. I say that he said that Claudia Winkleman's... talked about Claudia Winkleman's breasts on Twitter in an entirely what was seen as being an incredibly offensive remark that has come back to haunt him. And that's because I've spent so long in journalism that I know the where the, where the law is. I have a deep legal understanding of what I can and can't say to not to not be defamatory, the libelous or, or slander. The difficulty is that on social media there is no clear guideline as to whether it's slander or whether it's libel. And and it's it's a real rabbit hole of, essentially, it seems to boil down to how many followers you have and how many people see it and how viral it goes as to where the court will view it on that. But free speech is is better than ever. And the fact that Toby Young is getting angry because he's been called out for the stuff that he said means that free speech is alive and well. I mean, their argument is... The police have better
1: things to do than be policing what people said on Twitter, uh, and that actually there should be some sort of
2: group that supports people that are being witch-hunted for something they said. Is Toby Young the person to be doing that? I mean, first and for- first and foremost, he, look, this is this has happened because Toby Young made inappropriate marks about people's breasts. It's like you know, it's and and then he got he, he did get the, the you know the Twitter mob has handed him his uh, his proverbial and and I think that. He then has been obviously become very defensive about that. And, and it, it kind of demonstrates that he has been able to say something to, I think, the only reason he would say that and put that on Twitter is to kind of create outrage and to kind of get people to, you know, to to, uh, to be a bit irate about it. But he feels like it should only be at a particular line and you're not allowed to take it much further than that. And it's a bit like, well, if you want to say something and not have any consequences against it, then then don't say it. Why are you trying to rile people up? And, and likewise, it's, it to me, there's just this, this weird sense that, you know, you're not allowed to... That there's so many people now saying you're not allowed to say anything. And it's a bit like, yeah, but I'm hearing you say it. Mm. And I've never been able to hear your voices before. There are people out there now that are famous, you know, the Katie Hopkins, the Tommy Robinsons, the Piers Morgans, that, you know, these people have built their careers on Twitter and being able to say outrageous things. And then now they're bemoaning the fact that there's no free
3: speech. It's a bit like, but it's just such a weird paradox it, to me. It's that age-old trope. So he's saying that there is no free speech in a column in the Mail on Sunday, the biggest selling Sunday newspaper. It's bizarre.
2: I, I don't I, look. I don't think anybody buys into it. I think the reality is that Toby looks for things that he can then have people sit around a table in a podcast and talk to him, talk about him about. And that's that's all I see. Well, actually,
1: I mean, it's not statistically true that nobody buys into it, is it? I mean, I haven't seen how many people have subscribed, but judging that, by the, judging by the comments on the Mail on Sunday piece, there are readers out there who do. To be fair,
2: literally, yeah, you want to throw money it. to Toby Young, then then it's a free country. You I'm can saying yeah. I
3: do. I'm saying some people do. In principle, it's a good idea. Free speech should exist. Great, it's wonderful. You don't need Toby Young at the front of it. First of all, and. The way that he's doing it is flawed. Okay, but is there another organisation at the moment that
1: exists specifically to make sure that people aren't no-platformed at universities? That's one of the things they want to campaign
2: on, for example. Yeah, society and culture. I mean, like I, the, the, the the system that exists is that like if you want to say something outrageous, people will be outraged. If those people are people that will pay you to do something and they don't want you to do it anymore, then you lose that work. It's kind of to me, it's pretty straightforward let's talk about Disney, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> um, Jeff Goldblum, Mickey Mouse.
1: Um, because Disney Plus and Sky have signed a deal, which means that if you're a Sky Q subscriber, which is the kind of premium Sky product, isn't it? You'll be able to watch Disney Plus on a SkyQ app on your homepage with a pre-launch
3: price of £4.17 per month. What does that mean? It? means that Sky is understanding where it's at in the market. So the same, I think it was yesterday or the day before they announced a sort of really similar thing with Netflix. And what it means is that I've been on your podcast before bemoaning the sort of if 17 different subscription services launch, it's going to cost you £100 a month to be able to afford all of them, so you have to pick which ones you want. And Disney specifically absolutely smashed it out of the park. What was it? Two million subscribers within like the first, you know, three seconds of launch or whatever, the the first sort of 10, 20 days. And Sky doesn't have that same offering of original content that Netflix does, that Disney does. So it has to keep buying in that content. And for consumers, it means that instead of needing the 5, 6, 10, 12 subscriptions that you could have needed with Netflix and Amazon Prime and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you just need one. And Sky is hoping that Sky is the one subscription that you stick with, with the add-on, plus add-on, plus add-on, mm. plus add-on. But uh, an interpretation of that is that they
2: feel threatened. Well, so i it's interesting because when the Netflix deal was announced, I was already a customer of Netflix and I moved my Netflix account as a customer from paying Netflix directly to paying Sky because I did the maths and it meant that I saved a bit of money and it was easier for my billing and all that sort of chat so so there is a kind of there is a good customer value reason for doing this if you're a, a member of of Sky already and i 'm thinking about being a Disney plus member, so I probably will do it through my sky platform and and also my understanding i, I don 't know what the deal is, but I do know that the way that Amazon and Apple work is that they're trying to build an interface where you will subscribe to their to other people 's products through their platform mm-hmm. and then they will take a cut from basically that customer acquisition that they that they've helped build. This is all the marketing we're seeing around stars and exactly, exactly. So so if that's the deal that that Sky have done, then that's quite clever because it means that they're getting a cut of every subscriber from Disney. If then if they haven't done that deal, it's still quite clever because it means that this whole thing that we've been talking about for years and years and years and years, which is who owns HDMI one. Who owns that thing that when you turn (laughs) your T V on, what interface do you see? Mm. And I think that most people who are Sky Q subscribers in particular are very satisfied that when they turn it on, they see a very good, plush, very well um, uh, and stable interface system that is Sky Q. And Except and so-
1: I'm a Sky Q subscriber as well. And I just got a letter in the post the other day saying yeah. that my package is going yep. up. Yep. It's a pound more for the movies mm-hmm. and a pound more for the entertainment. I don't take sport, but that's mm-hmm. another pound or two more as well. And then it's going to be another four pounds for Disney stuff, which at the moment is bundled in because we have Disney Channel. Yeah. So basically, to keep watching the things that I'm already watching,
2: I have to give Sky another nine pounds a yeah. month, which is like the cost of a Now TV stick and Disney Plus by itself. Right, but I mean, this is not gonna. This is going to be the conversation that people have moving forward because all of these services are running at quite a significant loss. Netflix is running at a loss. Amazon, I mean, Amazon are a different business model because they just want you to pay it by a loo roll, and that's why they make Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But, but the, but the Apple. I've never heard Jeff Bezos say exactly. That. <laughs> I think he has. Said, I think he has said that. He said that he wanted you to buy socks or something. That's that's what his the business strategy was around Prime Video. I'm sure it's changed now. But but certainly Apple uh, are looking at buying people's devices and then again, people buying the Apple interface and that's where you kind of get the um, they, they get their recurring revenue. And I think that that's going to kind of continue happening. So for Sky, there is going to, but they're all going to raise their prices soon. There's no way that Disney is going to stay being £50 a month. It's the greatest deal in television at the moment. It's not going to stick like that. And so this kind of price creep will be seen across the board. Mm. And then customers will need to make a decision about when they get their email, when is the time that they're going to ring up Sky and say, enough is enough. And I think Sky are betting that they're still a little way off that, yeah. Yeah,
3: which is, that, that's why the Netflix deal is the most surprising one out of those deals, because Netflix can take on Sky at their own business. And Sky partnering with them is almost, okay, fine. I think your point around, are, are Sky scared? They're not scared. They're, they're doing brilliant business. Uh, but Netflix, I don't think Netflix needed to do that Sky deal at that point. I think Netflix is already growing quickly enough that it could have taken its own path without Sky. And I think that's the interesting deal out of, out of this. But, but it's, it's worth noting that Netflix,
2: Disney... You know, Amazon and Apple are kind of a different business model because they sell devices. Ooh. Disney aren't going to sell a device. You know, um, Netflix don't. There's no Netflix stick. You don't buy a stick, and you know it creates. So the Netflix's business strategy is being on every single platform possible. It's good PR mm. for them. It's good PR for, for Sky to kind of do that deal. It's not really a, a huge amount of heavy lifting. You know, all it means is that the app doesn't appear on your smart TV. It appears on your Sky Q box. So no, but nobody kind of goes, "Wow, this is an amazing deal that LG or Samsung have done with Disney Plus, and now you can press the button." <laughs> It's kind of the same sort of thing. It's your Disney P. Um, sorry, Sky's PR machine is a lot stronger and knows what they're doing. It's interesting as well to see the Disney Plus social media accounts promoting The Simpsons in the past few
1: days. The whole Simpsons back catalogue is going to be on Disney Plus from day one. So there was so I which think- Sky never did, despite having created it and owned it for so <laughs> many years.
2: But I, th- I think that there was a. So when, when the Fox and Sky deal went through, The Simpsons was obviously were a, a big part of that, and that's what a lot of people were talking about. I think there was even a, a bit of animation that they commissioned where Darth Vader kind of walked into The Simpsons' world and, and, that's, and, and Mickey Mouse all at the same time. And, and they realised how valuable that brand is, particularly to kind of older men. Mm. Um, that is, who, who watch Sky Q and, and other watches, ones making a decision and, and, whether to spend an extra quid. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that the original promo that went out in the UK didn't have any Simpsons in it and I think there's a suggestion that that those deals and the reason that this has taken so long to launch in the UK compared to everywhere else is because all of those licensing deals need to expire and move around etc. So there's obviously been a lot of backroom deals that have happened and, and fortunately again they've managed to snag this one before launch.
1: Yeah so that probably was one of the big talking points between Disney and Sky wasn't it because the Simpsons is so associated with Sky and for years the Sky
2: satellite vans were Homer Simpson weren't they? Starting on Channel 4 remember? Yeah, Sky, Sky. I think was it Simpsons. I know there was a lot of shows like Lost and ER and all that was was. Uh, I, I think was it always right? was on Sky
3: One, mm. but it's been on Channel Four as well for yeah. ten years. But certainly re-educating the public that it's a Disney thing. It's it's this fight, like it's the same as Friends. Friends keeps moving around platforms now, and whereas Friends, where, where is Channel Five, Peacock, <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: That's, that's a brand. That's not accusatory thing that you're saying to Alexander. <laughs>
3: and and so it's those brands which which they think or, or which they know, which they've done the audience research, will drive this many subscribers. You know, you move you move from Netflix to something else that that people will, will bid ridiculous sums of money. So you know, How I Met Your Mother. All these sorts of things are still to come, I think, unless they're going through licensing deals at the moment. Okay,
1: briefly on this, but there is a link, which is that. Um, Disney Plus cancelled their London launch because of fears over coronavirus. Um, I'm curious whether either of you have seen any impact on this. We could talk about the way the media's talking about it, too much hyping it, not information, all that stuff. But it, it dates so quickly that conversation. But I am curious as to what impact you might think it's having on on our
2: jobs. I so I'm not as busy as I would like to be, and and I you know there's lots of reasons why you could why you would say that would be the case. We sometimes pick up a lot of work around the summer. Um, around the festival season, around the fashion week season. And and we're a little bit concerned that we're going to be hit with a double whammy of it being the end of the financial year, so less briefs and less money are out there. Um, and also people are going to be a bit more cautious if music festivals are going to happen or kind of the big fashion events that are going to happen. Um, and and people are kind of sitting on their marketing budgets as a result of that. So, that, so kind of the, the non-broadcast stuff that we do, we are a little concerned that if this kind of continues um it is going to cause an, an impact on on the on the cash flow that we have but but to be honest i mean the reality is is that it, we're a small video company it's it's not really about us it's about kind of the nhs and and there's a lot more things that we have to be worried about before whether or not i'm going to get a video brief from glastonbury festival have
3: you been telling staff to stay at home alex uh not as it stands we're, con- we're keeping going as normal until the advice and the government changes um, but no, I'm heading to South by Southwest, the sort of tech music and everything else festival in a couple of weeks. And Facebook... Buy have, pulled- have the plane to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook <laughs> have pulled out. Amazon have pulled out. Uh, Twitter have pulled out. And actually, uh, I'm there promoting my record. Out 20th of March. Buy it from all good record shops. <laughs> um... But um, so actually I'm getting more offers of gigging because the musicians are starting to pull out. And so I'm sort of struggling for gigs. And actually, as horrible as coronavirus is and there's a bigger bigger thing it is, for me personally, the opportunity to play more shows out there is exciting.
1: Yeah. We, on- should, we should say as well that Alex is a musician. People aren't <laughs> interested in plugging a spoken word album <laughs> about metro.co.uk.
2: On, on the flip side, you know, when it comes to broadcasting and it comes to media information, this is where people like the BBC... Um, need to excel because, you know, getting public information out there, getting the facts out there, getting people to wash their hands more, getting people to touch their face less, all of that sort of stuff is information that that needs to be fed through as, as fact and not be fed through Facebook. And and so my hope is is that two things will happen. Number one, um, we will start seeing the value of, of the BBC and of, of you know, good news journalism as, as a result of this. Number two, people wash their hands more, which is always a good thing. And number three, from a completely flippant point of view, I think more people will stay in and watch TV and and, you know, watch um, the, the media and the broadcasting that we produce, and maybe listen to more
3: podcasts, listen to more radio, um, and that's kind of a good thing as us as an industry. I think John Oliver's last week tonight has done the best work on it so far. They, oh, I look forward to watching. Yeah, that. they did. A, they did a full sort of fifteen, twenty minutes on it, and it was spot on.
1: Okay, good. I'll look out for that. I wonder as well how many broadcasters are bringing in their own microphone shields. This is something they would never talk about on air because <laughs> it sounds very in. But you think about it, it's like a germ magnet, isn't it? And all day long, people spouting into it, brilliant, right next to your face. People driving their own desks, dirty hands. Be curious. I mean, Tweet me. Let me know if you've started bringing in your own equipment. I like terrified of the microphone <laughs> i <I'm thinking laughs> What are you doing? It's like, Sounds like I'm a off, perfect I'm moment done. to segue into a plug for our studios. <laughs> we'll be back with more media news after this.
4: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.
1: Spiritland Studios are run by Spiritland Productions, providers of professional audio solutions to TV, radio and online. As well as their broadcast-standard studio facilities, Spiritland Productions also has a world-class OB vehicle for audio and video projects of any scale. Whether it's podcasting, outside broadcasting or live concert recording, produce your next show with Spiritland Productions. Go to spiritlandproductions.com now. Welcome back to the media podcast. Faraz and Alex are still with me. Let's talk about Samira Ahmed briefly because she's just reached a settlement with the BBC after winning the pay discrimination case, which we've talked about on the show before, Faraz, but essentially it was her saying, I'm paid uh, significantly less than Jeremy Vine gets paid for points of view, for hosting Newswatch, albeit it has a smaller audience and it's on the news channel. Big tribunal, da 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 In the end, they've settled... I mean, how much, I, much do you think she got?
2: I, I, <laughs> I don't know when to go that, down down that path, but I'm I was go quite, on. I was quite surprised, I must say, because I th- I think that like. The um, the earthquakes that it creates as a result of you know what is you know what is the value of a particular presenter and you know are, is everybody who presents a show automatically mm. should be paid the same um, and we're going to have to have that debate now um, it was a it was a scathing judgment from from what I read it was you know it was, it was pretty pretty damning um, and I think that the the BBC lawyers I mean uh, again it's difficult to know about being in that courtroom but by the sounds of it the case that they put up was was just bizarre. Um, kind of suggesting that Jeremy Vine's and his, the way that he um, uh, his intonation and I, there's, there's there's certain things that I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there are certain things that were said that they, the lawyers put forward. It's a bit like this is not the case that you need to you need to you know this is there is a, a really interesting logical argument about whether one show or one type of presenting is worth more than another type of presenting, and it's not based around how popular Jeremy Vine is and um uh, and, and well how they were much, how trying unsuccessfully, I guess, to explain. The X Factor, weren't they? I don't but mean the I format. I mean the the the
1: the, the term.
2: It's never going to hold up to legal water. I mean, it's like you know, unless you can actually get a get a scientist in to kind of say, well, we know that every time Jeremy Vine appears on screen or appears on on the radio, his you know, his the way that he presents means that more people are engaged. You know, if they want to make that argument, then they make that argument. You've got to back it up with things that are, are, have legal you know hold legal water. And well, I don't think
1: we, do we actually asked Samira if she'd like to join us today to discuss this, and she declined, but she did give us this fact, which I think is quite an interesting thing for her to have said, uh, which is that Newswatch has twice the audience of points of view. Now, I don't know if that was a fact that was weaponized as part of this tribunal, but it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's one that wasn't really discussed around the
3: coverage of it. It's how the BBC justifies its pay structure, is that it's sort of commercially competitive. So... You know, when Chris Evans jumps ship, it's it's because, you know, he gets slightly more salary and the BBC has always said to pay the, pay the rate of the market. And so then if you get into pure capitalism, how can you justify one person's pay of another person's pay? And it's because more a person in the commercial competitor would pay more for Jeremy Vine than they would for Samir Ahmed. And that's that's a sort of frightening reality of it. But the, the actual thing, is, you know, the BBC couldn't prove it wasn't because of her gender. And so the BBC, by that ruling, is is a sexist employer. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's the legal summary of it. Just, it just seems like the, the BBC did a bonkers job, and all the BBC lawyers did a bonkers job in, in trying to defend it. Because what, the problem with this is that what do we do now? Does that mean the whole Newswatch team are now open to kind of saying, well, I don't get paid as much as the points of view producer? You know, so why is it that, you know, primetime BBC producers and and. A teams that kind of have this amount of resource and and we don't like you know it just opens up a pandora's box as Mm. to kind of what about how the whole system works and you know it's it requires the bbc to be like really robust and and put together sensible straightforward arguments and it
3: looks like they haven't been able to do that in this case if if you think about that settlement what was it uh she claimed that it was seven hundred thousand pounds in back pay so whatever that settlement is it's not going to be a couple of pounds
1: well I mean the nature of a negotiation in a mediation is you you both both sides go in sort of talking big guns don't they but <laughs> I, I guess for the BBC, the calculation would be even if they thought it it wasn't right to pay her. The calculation would be how much are we going to have to spend to keep fighting this, and it's public money. I,
3: I still think it is important that gender equality around pay is is absolutely ensured. And if the, if there was that question that the BBC couldn't answer about her gen, about about gender parity, that needed to be solved. And as discussed many times on this on this podcast before, that's still not right. The BBC is terrible at it. It is just slightly less worse than its competitors. Yeah, I mean, well, all three men
2: in this room agree. It'd be an interesting <laughs> conversation about whether or not Anne Robinson was paid the same as. Jane. Jeremy Vine when she did points of view. I mean, that's that's when we can kind of see real parity. Well, about. but we do know that Raymond Snoddy was paid the same for Newswatch as Samira Ahmed was. I mean, it's that's the thing. It's like, you know, we need to kind of have a, get a really good understanding as to kind of why they made these arguments. And it doesn't feel like they did put that legal case together.
1: Anyway, in happy news, uh, Samira has also just been shortlisted for the Broadcasting Press Guild's Audio Broadcaster of the Year. So if, if you're listening, Samira, well done. Uh, sticking on radio, the BBC's controller of pop, Lorna Clark, has announced plans to hire head of station positions for the networks that she oversees, which is all of them, which kind of means, but and they're not calling it the, the controller of Radio 1 and the controller of Radio 2 anymore, are they? But there are essentially new positions vacant for the controller of Radio 1, one extra, two, six, and Asian
3: network. I mean, it's boom time, isn't it, if you're a station <laughs> boss? It's a good thing until you try and find anyone who was formerly controller of Radio 1 or Radio 2, like Lewis Carney, Lewis who was the former head of Radio 2, you cannot find him on the internet anywhere he is invisible, <laughs> Ben Cooper, like I tried to find his LinkedIn, does not exist, it's fascinating, like where do they go I appreciate they're all the non-complete clauses but they are completely eliminated from the internet, they do not exist, and they, I, I spent I spent half an hour trying to hunt for these people. They become guests on a media podcast then <laughs> That's where the big money is. Your, your um, salt beef sandwich, and, and so it's like it's how you create the tone of Radio One, like and and, the, and how you create the tone of Radio Two, and actually having that autonomy of tone and of audience pushing and finding those different pieces, which which struggled when you know Bankkeeper ran one an Asian network, and when you know they, they were running like sixteen different things all at one time. Having one person focus on one thing is a good move, and it's, it's good for the. Is, BBC it, is it still a it. sexy job?
1: It used to
2: be a sexy job to be controller ready so one, controller ready so. two. Is I, it
1: still?
3: Yeah, I
2: think I think so. I think that and I think that the the the, the the, the value of these jobs is, is exactly that is is you get to concentrate on building one brand and it's it's a it's bringing back the idea that all of these things have individual audiences and, and individual personalities and and I think that's a really really good thing I, I agree I think there was a problem when you had Radio 1 and one extra and Asian network all being looked after by the same person because mm. it's like you know their focus is on, on that station identity is going to be diminished as a result so having one person be be responsible for each of those brands means that you know and also having that bit of integrity competition where they go up against each other we've already talked about how the bbc dominates in the radio space so yes they should be kind of you know competing for audiences as well And, and i think it's going to be a really good interesting insight into kind of what the bbc themselves feel like is the identity of those stations and and how they hire into that accordingly you do wonder whether anyone's going to come from the commercial world into those jobs because it's usually
1: internal candidates isn't it because even if you've done really well at bauer or global or wireless you're making a different kind of radio, generally, which involves basically less talking, smaller playlists.
3: But given the glo- the growth of LBC, of global of of all of these commercial brands, commercial brands have suddenly jumped up on the BBC and are, are dominating audiences, or at least on a on a even keel with audiences now. So BBC, in the same way, it looks for to YouTube or TikTok for the new presenters, looking to commercial for new sort of editing talent or controller talent, is no longer as unlikely as it used to be.
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think that like if you look at Radio One, Radio One is called Radio One, but actually its audience is about social, its audience is about video, its audience is about kind of you know pop culture in a different way that, that Radio Two's audience is, which is more purely about what the nuts and bolts of, of radio were. And one extra has to represent a culture, six music has to represent a music scene, and, and having one person try and put all those different hats on is is silly. So I think this is a really smart move, and and I think that what you'll see is lots of different types of people go for those sort of jobs, which I think will be quite exciting
1: i it's typically been sort of men in their 40s and 50s that have been running Radio 1. Do you think there should be a, a, <laughs> I mean, an age pick, cut-off? Pick, a, pick an editing job in the BBC. That is a, <laughs> yeah, Sure, but should there be an age cut-off for Radio 1? You know, like you say, it's supposed to be about youth culture.
2: I mean, I don't, I don't believe in age cut-offs. I mean, I, I think that John Peel and Marianne Hobbs and Pete Tong and, and you know, these people are still... Rep- I mean, David Attenborough is one of the most beloved and watched... Um, I don't at, think at, he's running for... <laughs> uh, no, but, but my, my point is, is, is that, it's the, suggest- the suggestion that you have to be a particular age to relate to a particular audience... I think is, is moot and it's, it's actually a little bit silly. I think that if you understand and know that audience, that's different and you understand where you can get the talent from and you can understand how to communicate to that audience properly, that's, that's one thing. But I think having kind of arbitrary cutoffs of age just because the demographics of a particular thing is, it's like, you know, Marquis, for instance, he is the head of music at, at, at the Asian Network and he's a white guy but he grew up in Southall, he was part of Punjabi Squad. he knows his music, he knows his Bhangra music better, more than anybody else out there. He just happens to be a middle-aged white guy, so do we get rid of him because he's not Asian? I mean,
3: that seems dumb to me. There's, there's a reason that the BBC, particularly Radio 1 audiences are too old, there's, there's a reason that BBC audiences are too old and that's because they do not trust young journalists or young producers. That's, that's definitely and, true. And, and so, guess. and if you're going to get these people in who are older or of, you know, um, widening diversity, which BBC has to do then, my God, speak to the, like, get the people in who can speak to those audiences directly because they have direct experiences of them, and the reason that the BBC is like, oh, why can't we reach your audiences? Because you do not trust your young journalists. It's the reason why I got so angry. It's the reason why my generation of former BBC employees all left, because they're all getting frustrated about the lack of opportunities, and if you look at the people who left with me, they're now running NBC studios, they're now running investigative units, they're now about to become editor of an international magazine, and this is because the BBC does not let people, give them agency or give them any voice, and it relies and a sort of a 50 year old to come and say, oh, that's nice, and then do nothing about it until they leave.
1: Okay, so, I mean, you're not following my logic of execute Andy Parfit, but you are kind of saying. It should be a young person.
3: It, it, and it needs to have oversight of people with experience who know where that line is. But they need, just so that then people can come in and push exactly where that line is. And then someone o- over the top of them can say, oh, that's not quite right. But make sure you keep saying yes and to these people because otherwise you will lose them, which the BBC keeps doing time and time again. And then it's surprised when, oh, we haven't reached any audiences. Oh, wonder where that could be. Good news for audiences young
1: and old now. There is just time to squeeze in our legendary media quiz. You can start eating your salt beef sandwich again now Mm -hmm. for us. If if you're still listening to this, you can put up with a little bit of uh, beef. (laughs) Uh, News landed this week that the classic satirical TV show Spitting Image will return as the first original commission for BritBox. Boris Johnson, Greta Thunberg and Donald Trump will all get a puppet. But how much do our guests remember? about the original series.
2: We're too young. You know, we're <laughs> that, that conversation.
1: <laughs> <laughs> YouTube exists. Uh, I'm going to pose three questions about the old spitting image. All our guests need to do is come up with the answer before their opponent. You buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Alex, you will say. Alex. And As, you will say. Faraz. Got it? Let's go. What did Margaret Thatcher call her collective cabinet in the original series of spitting oh. image? What did Margaret Thatcher call her collective cabinet? You're not going to do this multiple choice for us, are you? Uh, that would involve me inventing two other answers, <laughs> so I'll just tell you uh, it was the vegetables. Here's question number two: How much an average episode of Spitting Image cost to produce? Alex, Alex, three hundred thousand pounds. Bang on! You've read at least one story about Spitting Image ha- today.
3: No, because the the guy the. Roger Law, the co-creator of it, is a like, read any interview him. He's bloody brilliant. He's hilarious. Like, I, I hate this. I regret doing it. It's rubbish. <laughs> Everything is terrible. I regret... Oh, God, it was awful. I'll, I'll come back if you give me enough money. He, mm. I would love to go for a drink with him. He just sounds brilliant. How
1: much do Britbox pay now? Well, that is the question, isn't it? Is that the next question? Oh, okay, <laughs> no, it's not the next question. <laughs> but it's the question that arises. I mean, if it cost £300,000 then, in the late 80s, early 90s, to make it to that standard now...
2: And, then- and it be not topical because they'll need it to exist on a streaming platform for it and be relevant in like two, three
1: years. Yeah. Then. But really. I mean, you think of the level of quality of, of comedy talent they had back then. I mean, they had Harry Anfield and Steve Coogan behind the scenes, you know, doing the voices and writing the gags. It, it's not cheap, that
3: stuff. It'd be Snapchat filters. The, the, the Zuckerberg puppet is worth a million quid alone. <laughs> <honest>. <laughs> that...
2: Isn't it a puppet already?
3: This is a an <laughs> <laughs> Hey! Who says satire is dead? <laughs>
1: and here is, uh, well, it's not even a tie break. In fact, it would be easier if you didn't answer this for us so Alex can just win. Yes. Ronald Reagan had two red buttons by his bed, each marked with a single word. What were they? The original series of Spitting Image. Two, two buttons next to Ronald Reagan's bed. You are both going to oh, have to guess, aren't you? Reagan. They both began with N. No. Alex. Yes. No. <laughs> and nuke. One of them's got to be nuke. Very nuke good. And you get half a point. That's fine. Alex has won. Well done. <laughs> um, the two buttons were nurse and nuke. Nurse and nuke. A joke about his very good infirm age. Obviously less funny now he's dead. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Spitting image as this autumn on BritBox. Do you think? As I think people will, I think people aren't going to sign up to watch it. But I think the people who have BritBox might keep BritBox for longer because of it. And I do think it is going to trend on social media clips of it.
2: Yeah, like the Muppets well, do. I mean, puppets do well, don't they? Well, it has to be had some very good writers, and um, to get those jokes right, um, not in a fifteen-second clip of like Melania Trump doing something vulgar. No, there. but ITV, ITV kind of did a similar reboot, not a spitting image, but um, I can't remember exactly what it was called. But they they had a a, a kind of comedy satire, yeah, computer pu- animated, computer animated thing. show, yeah. and some of those clips landed. But you know, for the amount of work they put out of it, and, and the amount of shows they did and the amount of money they spent on it. it it's, is it a great hit rate? It's like...
3: For this series, it's how can you be part of that political conversation? How can mm-hmm. you get into Westminster? How can you get into the minds of the sort of general public? And I don't think that's possible because of the internet.
1: Were you thinking of Newsoid? Yeah, I think that's the one. There we go. Um,
3: doesn't <laughs> matter, you've still just got half a point. Um, Alex, you're the winner, congratulations. <laughs> that might be the first time I've won. Or it's the first time I've won in a long time. Well, well no then. puppet,
2: no puppet. It's a
1: big <laughs> spring has come, new job, yes. win the media quiz. Can only go downhill from now. Uh, thanks to Alex Hudson and to Faraz Osman, and thanks to you if you enjoyed our episode today and you want to help us make more we don't need the kind of money that Britbox are chucking spitting image, you can just take out a voluntary subscription for however much you like head to themediapodcast.com and choose your amount to keep us going all year round you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website themediapodcast.com I've been Ollie Mann the producer Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry The Media Podcast is a PPM production until next time, bye bye